0: Ready. G'day. Good morning. Where are we? Friday. Friday again. Uh, <laughs> it's a bit weird here at the moment. For a couple of reasons. Number one, it's not it's not sunny like where we normally have such like routine, predictable, beautiful weather <laughs> like all year round. Now here we are, <clears throat> almost all the way through the summer. And today it was going to be like a high of 19 degrees Celsius, which is really unusual for us. So it's overcast, it's kind of crappy. Uh, we also have the GC500. Now, if you're uh, not into cars, probably not your thing. But down the end of our road, a couple of hundred metres that way, they turn that into a racetrack every year. And Friday being today, Saturday and Sunday, is Aussie V8 Supercars, Porsche Carrera Cup, a whole bunch of other things as well. So just before I came up here to do this video, I could just start to hear the supercars on the track. So it's kind of nice. Although Charlotte was saying, by the time you get to 5 o'clock, it's like, yeah, it's kind of nice that all that noise has stopped now as well. So it's um, maybe a bit of a double-edged sword. All right, I've got a lot of stuff today. So let's, uh, let's jump into the four melodies with the sponsor. Sponsor this week, as it has been many, many weeks for this year, is Collide got Linux and Mac and Windows and iOS and Android which is pretty much all of them and Clyde has the device trust solution for you click here to watch the demo. Uh, Look I I really like the fact that Clyde first of all has been around all year has been fantastic the Clyde will see them a lot more next year as well Uh, and also that they do actually give some demos lots of good information here device trust for Okta watch the on-demand demo where we go over the challenges of implementing zero trust with Okta We're going to talk about Okta today as well. That's a good segue. Unintentional segue. This sponsorship slot was scheduled well before Okta was making news in in the way it has this week. How Collide integrates with Okta to keep untrusted devices from accessing your company's apps. And how end-user remediation removes the IT bottleneck that often derails zero-trust initiatives. Okta. Yeah. Now, (laughs) we'll get to that. That's going to be the first topic here. Uh, what did I put on the list? I think that was the thing, the first thing I put. Where are my windows going? I had a, an early presentation this morning, so I had to get up extra early, even for me. So I was taking a while to sort of catch my, uh, I don't know, catch off my sleep, catch up with my breath. What have we done? Where are we? One password. An octa, right? Let's get into the meat of it because this is. I found this fascinating. Actually, uh, I see a lot of disclosure notices about different things. G'day, Dave. Evening, all. Oh, Dave is here. Evening, Europe, US, Someone like that. Is Dave? Uh, oh yeah, twenty three in me is still in the news as well. I'm just like spinning back through my tweets here. Where's the uh, where's the one password one that I'm after? You don't want to see 1Password doing anything disclosure-like, but I think this one is is pretty good. In fact, I was listening to Risky Biz. If you don't listen to the Risky Biz podcast, get Risky Biz. Listen to them talk about this. Uh, Only yesterday, I think, it came out, and saying that this incident, for what it turned out to be, is like really good news because basically nothing has happened, nothing of any substance has happened, which is great. Wayne's here, George's here, Dave is in the UK. Very good. Wayne said something, changed his mind, he's done. All right. G'day, Wayne. <laughs> Let's jump into it. October 2019, 2023. This is a one password incident report. I'm going to raise the first big problem I have with this that someone else raised. It's a PDF. <laughs> I'd like to see this on a web page. And that's the only criticism I have of the whole thing. Why do we need PDFs? Shout said to me yesterday, we just had to put some more documentation on have I been punished. So, will you put this there as a PDF? No, I will hand edit the HTML until it is right, because we have a way of putting markup on the web that doesn't require an external product. "And I pick up the Elgato prompter. No, no, I just, I don't need my shit. <laughs> If I'm honest, (laughs) I think it was you that raised it last week, wasn't it, Wayne? It's like it's it's cool. I like it. I just I just don't know that that's that's what I need. Anyway, so uh, here's the incident report. Now there's a bit of an executive summary, and then it's the technical. I'm always interested in the technical bit. So yeah, executive bit is like something happened. It wasn't too bad. We're fine. Uh, But what I've said is September 29. Remember, the IT team received an unexpected email notification suggesting they had initiated an Okta report containing a list of admins. They recognised that they hadn't initiated the admin report and alerted our security incident response team. Preliminary investigations revealed activity in our Okta environment was sourced by a suspicious IP address and was later confirmed that a threat actor had accessed our Okta tenant with administrative privileges. Sounds bad. Corroborating with Okta support, it was established at this incident shares similarities of a known campaign where the threat actor will compromise super admin accounts and attempt to manipulate authentication flows and establish a secondary identity provider to impersonate users within the affected organisation. This has been in the news a lot, and again, I think the Risky Biz podcast done a great job of explaining this, but adding alternate authentication providers to an Okta tenant such that you can log on to Okta things via a provider of your choice, you being the bad guy, does seem to be a uh, a tradecraft that we're seeing a bit of based on initial assessment we have no evidence that proves any actor accessed any systems outside of octa the activity that we saw suggested they conducted initial reconnaissance with the intent to remain undetected for the purpose of gathering information for a more sophisticated attack last bit here while immediate measures have mitigated the risk associated with this event it highlights a number of security improvements we will be prioritizing now i'm going to speculate about what i think some of those are Full disclosure on 1Password's Board of Advisors, has a financial interest, know nothing about this other than what I've read. So I don't speak for 1Password when I talk about this bit here. Now, uh, Dave says, 1Password thing was an interesting read. I was a LastPass user until I switched to 1Password earlier this year, so very glad I've not had to change Password Manager again. Now, um, I've said even in the case of LastPass, who, let's be honest, has made headlines a number of times over the years. Other than that one, that most recent one where someone actually got access to vaults, encrypted vaults, and then it sounds like they've been brute forcing some of them. Other than that one, most of the, I think all of the last past instances I can think of didn't actually have anything of substance that would cause concern. And I would lament over and over again that the headlines might cause people to pursue the wrong behaviors i.e get rid of their password manager and try and use one stored in their head which is going to be terrible oh. other than that last one this one for one password has turned out based on everything we've seen here to be a bit of a nothing burger but let's talk about how it happened because I think this is really interesting so uh, my intention is not necessarily to read every line here but we'll see because I, I think it's there's a bit of good good sort of substance here so uh, They've said here. I mean that the first line is sort of the the important bit in the technical overview. A member of the IT team was engaged with Octa Support, and at their request, so at Octa Support's request, created a HAR file from the Chrome Dev Tools and uploaded it to the Octa Support portal. Now, if you've never created a HAR file from Chrome before, think about what you see in the Dev Tools. So what is in the request, what is in the response. Everything in the headers, everything in the body, and of course the path that's being requested. That may have sensitive material in it. Not necessarily the path, for the most part we try not to do that in the path, but it might be in the headers, such as in the cookies, might be in the body, such as uh, information you might post in a form. And of course the response could have sensitive stuff. The HAR file contains all of this information. Now, I suspect there's going to be a lot of questions asked, both in Okta and OnePassword, and also Cloudflare was caught up in this as well. So, yeah, two of my favourite companies. <laughs> good, good on you, everyone. And to be clear, I think using Okta is a wonderful thing. It is a, it is a great thing. I've got lots of friends at Okta. Good relationship with Okta. Uh, I think this process of asking for a half file to be uploaded to a portal... Obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, it wasn't great. But I would argue that even with foresight, it probably wasn't a good idea at the time. <clears throat> I can see why, because they're trying to reproduce some sort of a problem. And if you get the half hour, you get to see everything <coughs> Excuse me, that was in the request and then everything that was in the response. From a troubleshooting perspective, there's value. But it got uploaded to the portal. And then long story short, Threat Actor has gotten access to the Octa portal and grab the half file. Once I've had the half file, I've been able to effectively session hijack the person who submitted the support file, which is really interesting. And then it goes on and on, and on about a whole bunch of other things. Uh, the half file was created on the team members macOS laptop and uploaded via Rider Wi-Fi, as this event occurred at the end of a company event. Uh, based on the analysis of how the half file was created and uploaded, Okta's use of TLS and HSTS and the prior use of the same browser <coughs> excuse me, to access Okta, it is believed that there was no window in which this data could have been exposed to the Wi-Fi network or otherwise subject to interception. In other words, it wasn't that the half file was grabbed by someone sitting on the wire at the hotel because you've got TLS top to bottom, HSTS, which is going to force the connection to be a secure connection, uh, and they go in here and say, look, they're quite confident it didn't come from the machine itself, so they concluded that the only way it could have happened is the half file that was in Octa's support portal. Uh, what else is in here? Uh, I think they're kind of the main bits, and this, this is what sort of fascinated me about how much value there is in just that file. Now, of course, then there are lots of other mitigating controls, or you know, the, the fact that uh, you get alerted as soon as someone's trying to pull a directory listing of everyone in the in the tenant, I think there was a the term they used in this case. Uh, yeah, these were obviously really, really early red flags, and they managed to get on top of it. Um, incidentally, and, and one was published a lot of information about this as well, but just the fact that uh, they don't have, for example, the, the secret key to your vault um, is is a really good example of the sort of stuff that is important. Now, obviously, I don't have the master password. Really important such that if these things do sort of gather momentum and get out of control, it's not going to bring the whole house of cards down. Uh, I was, was just talking about the sponsor in, in the intro about principles of least privilege and zero trust and everything. And it's precisely for reasons like this, because you've got to work on the expectation that someone might get access to a part of your infrastructure through some unexpected way. Uh, I wonder if there was a policy in One Password about uploading half files or something to that effect. I, I bet you there is now. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. But if something like that you probably wouldn't have seen coming. You know, that's that is fascinating. Yam says, the half file was the most interesting to me, combined with an account capable to change the identity provider and not reading their password after sharing, not resetting their password after sharing, of course. Well, the thing is, it's not quite clear to me whether the password was in the half file or whether the authentication material was in the half file so were they like auth tokens and session tokens I think it was the latter I don't think it was the password in which case resetting the password unless it also invalidated the sessions which I suspect it would probably do with Okta uh, wouldn't have made a difference hmm so <clears throat> it, it is quite fascinating and I think um, If you haven't listened to it, go and listen to that risky biz because Patrick was in the US with some NSA folks as well and I think Rob Joyce was making the comment about the significance of identity providers such as Okta and how much of a big target they have become and how they need to have everything like absolutely spot on. So this seems to be something that has led to no actual adverse outcomes and will certainly change some of the practices uh, that I imagine both Octo one password and all the other organizations paying attention will uh will hopefully implement so hopefully this makes everything better with nothing bad having happened <laughs> it's a very positive spin on it isn't it okay let's talk about something else yeah cookies are good enough i guess Well, <laughs> oh. um <clears throat> just earlier today when i was doing a presentation i was talking again about genesis market so remember genesis market taken down by the FBI and friends earlier this year, which was selling authenticated sessions. I'll rephrase it. It was selling browser fingerprints and cookies for individuals, which included authenticated sessions. And, and of course, with the browser fingerprint, if the session was at all tied to user agent strings or things like that, um, th- then you had everything you needed to recreate the session and hijack it. Yeah, The, the fact that there is a market for this sort of stuff it just goes to show that Things like credential stuffing are no longer enough. Uh, You add two-factor authentication and credential stuffing doesn't work. You're on to the next thing. Let's talk about 23andMe. (laughs) Since I mentioned that, I shouldn't laugh because they're obviously having a bad time of it. But when I was scrolling through my tweets this morning, I saw somewhere in here, I had mentioned them again during the week. Someone sent me uh, an email from 23andMe, which had been sent to them. Because they were impacted by this. Now, when I first saw this in my pre copy morning blur, it's like, all right, someone's got a disclosure notice from 23andMe. Uh, obviously, they are a victim of the credential stuffing attack. They're reusing their passwords. Shame on. I'm going to say, shame on them. Um, not just their fault. Not just victim blaming. Obviously, 23andMe has got to do a better job protecting this sort of stuff. But if you're reusing your credentials in this day and age, you are asking for trouble. But that wasn't the case so what had happened was I'm not a 23 me user but inevitably when you use it and you upload your DNA I don't think you just upload it but you know what I mean you've done the test kit and everything you, you pass it in it matches you to other people and then other people can see some of your data and what seems to have happened is someone else whose DNA connected them to this person that other person had reused their credentials, they'd been a victim of the credential stuffing attack and as a result of it, exposed the personal data of the person that sent me the email. I'll just read the bit here because I screen-capped it out of of 23andMe's email to them. How does this impact you? After further review, we have identified your DNA relative's profile was one that was impacted in this incident, specifically there was unauthorised access to one or more 23 me accounts that were connected to you through DNA relatives. As a result, the DNA relative's profile information you provided in this feature was exposed to the threat actor. You can see a full list of types of information that you may have included in your profile here. You can view what information is currently included in your DNA relative's profile and make changes here. Based on our investigation so far, we believe only your DNA relative profile attributes were exposed. Now, I do think under the circumstances this is actually a good a good message from 23andMe. That was like a tiny bit of a much, much bigger message. Um, I think they've done well of communicating a bad situation, but the, the thing that was hitting me in reading this is that you can do everything right in terms of your own cyber hygiene and then someone else does something wrong and exposes you by virtue of the nature of the service and the thing that immediately came to my mind was Covey C O V V E I was in the CoVI data breach and the reason I was in there is someone else and in fairness this person didn't do something wrong but someone else used this contact management service and it was someone who I'd met in Salt Lake City. I remember who it was, I got a good tour actually. <laughs> it was a nice guy, <laughs> took me around Salt Lake City, obviously put me, I suspect, in like his devices contact list, Kavi access to your contacts, takes it all, puts it in the cloud, they had a data breach because he had put my data in there, I'm now in the breach. Now that's a little bit different to this insofar so far as the person that sent me the email obviously signed up to 23andMe themselves, then did everything right, and someone else in there did something wrong and that became the vector by which their information was exposed. But the, I guess the fact or the observation that remains is that even when you yourself do everything right, you can still come undone, if you know what I mean. So there's that. JNS says, I reviewed the compliance documents from October, and it seems like they don't use endpoint protection outside of the system built Built-ins. There is another massive discussion around the effectiveness of endpoint protection. (laughs) That's another show altogether. Let me get more people on for that. All right. So the twenty-three May thing—it's obviously still ongoing. I have seen various commentary about the threat actor, to use their term, uh, dumping more data via a popular hacking forum. Some of the data I have seen. from what I could see, really didn't have anything that was of obvious use or risk to me. Uh, I'm really cautious when I say that because particularly when it's DNA stuff, I suspect there. first of all, there are probably ways of using it that I don't understand because DNA is a whole other science. Second of all, even if there's not ways of using it now, might there be in the future? I mean, how many cold cases have been reopened or solved because of DNA. Now, I know that's a totally different thing to there is a website where you can connect to people, but my point is is that as things change over time, uh, that the risk can also change. All right, something totally different. Have I been pwned? I just put this in in the title. I think I did mention this a couple of shows ago, but it is now starting to gather a bit of momentum. Rolling Have I Been Pwned from Table Storage to SQL Azure. We are about six weeks out, probably even less, from Heather Van Pine's 10th birthday. What are we gonna do? I should think of something. All right, I'll think of something. <laughs> we'll find a 10th birthday celebration thing. Um, it was all built on Azure Table Storage in so far as all of the data that you're querying when you enter a query into that great big search box on the front page, hits table storage, and it does that because it's very fast and it's very cheap. And it's just as fast today with, there's a total of about 12.5 billion, I think nearly 12.7 billion breached records as there was when it was 150 million when I first started. Uh, Incidentally, I I did actually do a, uh, a full backup of this database, which has only just finished, and I'll explain why it took so long as well. And the grand total of individual rows in table storage, every row is one email address, was just under 5.5 billion. So tells us two things. Number one, it's a big number. Number two is there's about 5.5 billion unique email addresses and about 12.7 billion breached accounts, then each account has been breached two point a little bit times on average. Now, the fact that I've just done a backup that's taken many, many days to do is part of the problem. There is no good backup, restore, disaster recovery strategy for table storage. The best model that I've been able to find is you run an AZ copy, which takes about three and a half days to take all the table storage and dump it to JSON. I have never tried restoring this. I have the JSON so of course it'd be possible it's human readable I can see what's in there I would speculate that it would not be fun to restore it and I suspect it would be that long again so in other words if the whole thing got newt we're gone for at least a week which should be particularly when there are people who actually pay for access to some of those services it would be bad like it would be really bad news we don't have any point in time restore, we don't have any geo-replication, we don't have all of these other sorts of things that you get when you go to something like SQL Azure, when you've got a relational database management system. So the plan is to roll from table storage to SQL Azure. Now I've had this this desire to roll off table storage for several years now and for quite a while there I was thinking well Cosmos, we'll roll, roll to Cosmos which seems to be like the logical successor to table storage. And every time I did the numbers on it, it was very, very high uh, cost wise. So that the two big things I'm worried about is performance and cost. I don't want one to go down and I don't want one to go up. (laughs) That's, that's the reality of it. So how do I roll from something that's been very fast and very cost effective but has all these other issues, to something else that's still very fast and even if you pay a bit more money, it's okay, but obviously there's a point at which the tolerance is just going to go. So how do we roll to something else? So what we've been doing, particularly over the last two weeks, is modelling the way we think the relational database should look, how it should be indexed, how it should be queried, what sort of relationships should be there. Been modelling it and... The plan at the moment is probably next week, I'll write a blog post and I'll open source the model. Uh, in fact, it's already sitting there in the Have I Been Pwned uh, repository. I just haven't made the, the vis- visibility of it public yet. I just wanted to get it right before I was like, okay, now we'll invite, uh, invite input. <clears throat> so the things that I'm really fascinated about are for a service where there are billions of records and then there can be really massive peaky loads. And then when you load a data breach, it can be really computationally intense in terms of the sorts of queries it needs to run, not because the queries are complex, because the volumes are high. So imagine we've got a breach. It's, let's say, 500 million records, of which there are multiple and have been pwned. And you've got to take those 500 million records and insert them into a system that's already got five and a half billion records. Only add new email addresses, donate add email addresses that exist already. And then go through and add all the mappings for the breaches. I can write those queries really easy and I can make them really really fast for a reasonable size database but I'm very cautious about how it's going to work with something very very large. So this is something uh, Stefan and I have been working on and I think again next week I'll try and open it up and and get input and we're really looking for feedback is, is a combination of everything from database design to Are there other ways within the constructs available in Azure that we can make it more efficient? The the plan at the moment is to roll the entire database to serverless. So at the moment, it runs on a a fixed size, a fixed number of DTUs. Occasionally, when I load a larger data breach, I scale it up. We drop some connections. I forget to scale it back for a little bit, and I pay too much. Like, it's just, it's unpleasant. So SQL Azure serverless looks really neat. I want to do a few database optimizations for what exists at present and then just roll the existing system over to serverless and then we can start adding the new bits after we go open source and seek community feedback. But then even then, like if we go to serverless, we can go to, a, what do they call it? A general, let's just call it general scale. Or we can go to hyperscale and then hyperscale gives you some SSDs and things like that, but I'm just not sure how much that's going to hit us cost-wise and I'm also not sure how, how much outage we might have as we scale between tiers because I know at the moment if I increase the DTUs, I can see connections being dropped because I can see in app sites in the error log regularly having spikes of database not accessible during that time. So I'm hoping, hoping serverless does that more cleanly. I don't know. It's like we're literally learning this as we go, which is, you know, part of the reason for open sourcing it and trying to get other people to contribute, you know, people who might have spent a bit more time doing that particular thing. Hmm. Now next point I had on here was services using HIBP. So I put out a bit of a tweet thread on this and no one replied, which I thought was kind of interesting because lots of people had sent me the tweet which prompted me to write the tweet thread. Service New South Wales. Now, if you're not from Australia or not familiar with our states, yes, we have states as well, not as many as America, but we have some. New South Wales is our largest state by volume of people, just. Uh, It starts about 30 kilometres this way and goes, I don't know, a couple of thousand (laughs) kilometres further south. Um, So Service New South Wales, which... What does service New South Wales do? I guess prov- <laughs> provides a bunch of services, a bit of an amorphous blob. I think within there we have things like our roads and transport authority and everything else. Uh, they sent a whole bunch of emails out to people. It must have been Monday or Tuesday our time because I suddenly started getting a lot of tweets at the same time. Now, one of the tweets from a guy called Igor and the tweet that Igor sent says: On 26 October 2023, we're launching a new security feature that will help you better protect your identity information from cybercriminals. What these security improvements mean is that when you log on to your My Service New South Wales account, we will immediately check the dark web. Ooh, <laughs> the dark web for leaked email addresses and password combinations alert you if we find the email address and password you just used and then in bold strongly suggest you change your password it's kind of fascinating they're like we know that you're using a known compromised email address password combination hey did we mention 23andMe but we're just going to strongly suggest you change it we're not going to force it which I, like I, I can understand but you know those people are asking for trouble don't you your information is protected and not disclosed to anyone during this security check. What you need to do now, there's nothing you need to do now. <laughs> These new security features will run automatically. Now, a bunch of people sent me this and said, is this using Have I Been Pwned? Or it is using Have I Been Pwned? Or it would be cool if it uses Have I Been Pwned? Or something to that effect. And I kind of like, I saw the first couple of them and I was like, oh, I'll just yeah, I'll ignore that. And I saw a few more and eventually I went, all right, I'll, I'll say something on this. Now, here's what I'll say. And then I realised later on I could have said a bit more. There are a whole bunch of publicly accessible services on Have I Been Pwned? Uh, Some of them, such as the public API, require attribution. If you're going to use it, you need to say, I'm using it. Pwned passwords doesn't, and the main reason for that is because I just don't want any barriers there. That's why there's no authentication. It's freely accessible. It's all cached in Cloudflare, all this sort of stuff. Uh, But things like the public API that you pay now $3.95 a month for, starting it, (laughs) that one does have an attribution requirements and license terms. So in cases like that, companies need to say this is where it's from. We have other services that are more enterprise orientated that are used by the likes of 1Password and Firefox. Now, I'm saying their names because they were happy to talk about it. Uh, And and we've made much fanfare of it. One Password talks about integrating with Have I Been Pwned in the app. Mozilla with Firefox Monitor talks about that on the Firefox Monitor page. And that's fine. There are other organizations, things like identity theft organizations, cybersecurity companies that use Have I Been Pwned commercially and don't want to talk about it. In some cases, their legal documentation is literally, you will not disclose this. So my point being is that in cases where organisations haven't explicitly said, yes, we're using have I been pwned, I'm not going to say they are, and I may be legally bound to not say that they are. But what about organisations that aren't using it, but then people say, are they using it? Well, if, if I say they're not, because they're not, then the ones that are, if I then say I can't say it's almost like Warrant Canary sort of stuff right it's like be, by virtue of you not saying something it actually can conf- you know what I mean bottom line is that for any organization the only way I'll disclose if they're using have I been pwned is either if they publicly state it or if it is publicly discoverable now <laughs> this is what I learned about well what I remembered about service New South Wales later on <laughs> so Service New South Wales does have a password check page. And if you look at the dev tools, you'll see that they are requesting Have I Been Pwns Pwn Password API. And they also, by their own free volition, have decided to disclose it in the bottom. Again, you don't have to disclose or attribute when it's uh, when it's Pwned Passwords. They decided to, which is fine. So what I can say is that they are using the Pwn Passwords piece because they've already said that and <laughs> you can see it in the dev tools. So... So there's that in the same way as i've said like telstra in australia our, our largest telco every single time you log on to telstra uh, you can see that they're using have i been Pwned. there's a big api.pinepasswords.com request there in the dev tools i hope that makes sense and i i like i i lament a little bit that it sounds a bit vague it's like oh i can't say whether they do or whether they don't i can't confirm or deny but that is the reason, because it's literally legally bound in many cases. Okay, last thing, Zigbee hell. I find that the IoT stuff, I don't know if it gives me a break from doing data breaches and the talks and blog posts and whatever else, or if it's just painful. I don't know what it is. Is it, is it work, is it fun? Uh, now it's just become like a necessity of life to maintain the IOT so (laughs) obviously I have a lot of devices a lot of them are Wi-Fi most of them in the house are Wi-Fi but a lot of them also run on Zigbee and there's a few different reasons to run Zigbee as an alternate network to your normal 802.11 Wi-Fi things Uh, now one of the really good reasons is that they will natively mesh so if you have powered Zigbee devices, they can act as a router on a Zigbee network. So when I look around my office, I've got two Philips Hue lights. They're the little, uh, little Hue Go lights, the ones that sort of shine up on the wall, make it look nice and cozy. They're powered. They're Zigbee. All the Philips Hue stuff is Zigbee. They will mesh together. I've got a whole bunch of uh, Philips Lily garden lights I've got, I think, about eight out there and another bunch out there. I've got a couple of the pedestal lights near the driveway. All of them will mesh together. So when you join into the network, they all start to form part of this mesh, which is great. I've then got lots of things like, up in the corner, which you can't see from this camera angle, there is one of the akira motion sensors. That is Zigbee. It's battery-powered. Uh, a lot of the... I can't remember what size battery that is but a lot of the ones like temperature sensors are CR2032 so they're very common little sort of uh, coin size batteries I've got dozens of those around the house between motion sensors so that we know when people are in rooms and then weather sensors I say weather because they're temperature, humidity and pressure a bunch of reed switches for proximity so when the garage doors and things open and close we can see those Uh, and then a couple of things that are like Still works in progress. <laughs> I haven't touched this rain sensor for months, but that is a water/slash/leak sensor that is Zigbee based. Now, the value proposition of having all of these on Zigbee is that Zigbee is a combination of uh, low power usage and also low bandwidth, but low bandwidth is all that you really need when we're talking about something that just sends back the the current weather, for example. So that's actually a pretty pretty good use case for the bandwidth uh, and and using Zigbee. Now, um, what you need in order to make all this work is a Zigbee coordinator. So you need a device which is normally like a USB stick that plugs into your Home Assistant instance. Obviously everything I do here is Home Assistant. And you start pairing to the Zigbee coordinator. And then as you pair powered devices that connect as a router, it expands your mesh. So when I first set all this up a few years ago, I used a Conbi USB stick with a little aerial on it. And actually, it doesn't have a little aerial. Just looks just, just like a USB stick. Used a Conbee, and I used Dcons. So Dcons is a software that runs on home assistant that allows you to join all your networks and it coordinates them all and exposes all your devices and all your entities. Now, that was okay, but there are two other models for doing Zigbee that I really wanted to give some consideration to. Now, breaking it into both the hardware and the software side of things, I upgraded my Home Assistant to Home Assistant Yellow uh, a couple of months ago. I just found that I had exceeded the practical capabilities of the Raspberry Pi. Uh, I wanted to get a dedicated Home Assistant device that... That still runs on, a, on a, a Raspberry Pi compute module but then has a dedicated NVMe SSD and a whole bunch of other things that just make it much more scalable. So Home Assistant Yellow ships with onboard Zigbee so you don't need an external dongle anymore. So gives me another piece of hardware. Then if I'm going to settle this up again what do I do? Do I, <coughs> do I use decons again or do I use either ZHA which is built in, so the Zigbee Home Assistant implementation, or do I use Zigbee to MQTT? And I did a bunch of research on both. And honestly, the, the feedback was very much on the fence. So I could use this, could do that, a few little pros and cons. And I actually started setting up Zigbee to MQTT. And I had a couple little problems. And I was like, stuff it. I'll look, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll run it with the native ZHA, it's built in a Home Assistant as part of it. I'm actually thinking I might be able to get rid of MQTT altogether anyway, so let's just run with ZHA. Now that's, that's fine, run with ZHA. Part of the problem, or part of the reason why I was trying to switch, I just found a combination of the way Decon sort of runs with that little integration where you have to auth into this integration, then you add everything there in this Decon's UI, and then it appears in Home Assistant, it just felt clunky. The other thing is, <clears throat> I wasn't having real consistent results toggling lights and what i mean by that is let's say i'm in the kitchen and i look out and i've got five lights by the pool five phillips hue lily lights and in the evening they come on and they shine like a blue onto the wall in the morning they come on they're very dim and it's a very warm light it's just what i like constantly four of them would come on blue and one of them would be yellow and I just wouldn't be able to control it from the UI. And then you get to the morning and for some reason it's like four of them would come on yellow and one of them would be blue or something like that. It just, it was inconsistent. I'd often walk out the front where I have so many of them and I'd be walking along and I was like, why is there one light on? Or why is there one light off? I just wasn't getting consistent results. As I started to roll stuff over to ZHA, the consistency of lights, bang on, perfect. <clears throat> Part of it as well is because we do have Zigbee groups within ZHA. There were light groups in decons, but they never seem to be very good. The groups are meant to pair devices that are logically part of the same area so that they all communicate with, the, I think they communicate with each other more effectively and turn on together, or obviously try to unify and coordinate better. Uh, so I found the results of that really, really good. The painful thing is I'm having to go through and repair every single Zigbee device in the house, of which there are about, I think, 84 or 85. Now, this isn't like just rejoining a device to another Wi Fi network. And even that's not always fun, let's be honest. But here's the pain of it, right? So, different Zigbee devices pair in different ways. The Philips lights, Philips Hue lights, because they're all on another Zigbee network, let me, I don't even know where to begin with this. I'll rephrase it. I thought it would be like a Wi-Fi light where if you toggle the power five times quickly or ten times quickly or something like that, it would go into pairing mode. And when it's in pairing mode, it's exposed and you just add it back in. No, that's not the way the Philips Hue lights work. The way you have to pair the Philips Hue lights or pair them, take them off one Zigbee network and then put them on another, is you've got to get your Philips Hue hub which I had from ages ago but no longer use because everything Zigbee's to Home Assistant now. Anyway, pulled the hub out of the drawer, updated the firmware because it was super old. And then I have to pair each light that's already on the old Decon's network onto the hub. So, how do you pair a light? Every Philips Hue light has got a serial number. The serial number, depending on the type of light, is hidden somewhere on the device. And I'll give you an example. Okay, so this is a Philips Hue Go. Now, <laughs> somewhere on that label on the bottom, which you probably can't even see, is like it's just there, somewhere is the serial number. You have to know the serial number. So I'm like going around to devices, I cannot read that for the life of me. So I'm getting my phone out and taking photos, I'm zooming, enhancing, recording the serial number. Not too bad for these ones. Philips Hue light strips. So, you know, like the little LED strips. It is on the controller box that plugs into the end of the strip, which I've often double-sided taped somewhere out of the way. So now I'm like crawling around trying to remove these double-sided taped devices to have a look at the serial number. Most of them fine. For some reason, there's a light strip in Ari's room. I cannot find a serial number on it anywhere. It works. It's still there. It's on the old Decon Zigbee network. Can't find the serial number. The one that's going to absolutely kill me is we've got a massive mirror. This mirror is, is probably like four metres by two and a half metres. It's huge. It has a light strip all the way around the edge of it. It goes in through the wall into joinery, and somewhere in there is the box with the serial number on it. So I'm pulling apart cupboards trying to get access to it. I can get access to the transformer, but then the tail of that disappears into the wall, and the actual box for the light strip I cannot see. And until I can see that box and until I can get the serial number, I can't pair it to the Philips Hue hub. Why am I pairing all this stuff to the Philips Hue hub? Good question. Because after it all pairs to the hub, I then need to go through and remove it from the hub. And that's what puts it into pairing mode so you can join it back onto ZHA. (laughs) So so this is what I've gradually been doing. Uh, And I have at the moment, in fact, if if I open up VNC, which then gives you a viewer, into the decons map, which shows you the devices, I've now got most things paired, certainly most powered units, but I've got this freaking mirror, which I can't find the serial number for, and the LED strip on Ari's desk, which again, similar... the the one on his desk, I kind of don't care about as much because I've got a few spare strips. I can always just pull the strip off, put the other one on, and then this one, I don't know, like chuck it in the bin. The one behind the mirror, I mean, it's it's massive. There must be like ten meters of light strip. Number one, and then number two, it disappears into the wall. Like, I don't <laughs> I feel like I'm going to end up having to make a decision about whether. I just completely drop this off the network altogether or I keep running decons with the old combi stick just so that I can have the frickin mirror with colour control. It's behind a shelly so I can always just kill the power on and off. But if I unpair it from decons, well I can't even unpair it from decons because the only way you can do that is if you get the serial number and you pair it to the Philips Hue hub. Let's say I uninstall decons from Home Assistant. Then I feel like I'm never going to be able to control it again unless I pull the freaking house apart and find the box. Ugh. Lee says, I'm having the same issues as you with Philips Hue lights with one randomly off for no reason. Uh, and then later on, she says, how frustrating. So, Lee, are you using a Philips Hue hub or are you using a Zigbee controller like a ConBee or Yellow and then a ZHA or a decons or an MQTT? Bezos anti bullying Agency says Troy's IoT ways continue, continue later. Love it. Stephen, I've been quite lucky with my Zigbee stuff. It's the Shelly 2.5 that Keats randomly decides to stop working until I kill the power at the consumer unit, turn it on and off again. It works for five minutes. Yeah, I'm dealing with the same thing at the moment. I've got um, – how many Shellys do I have? I've literally got an Excel spreadsheet of all of the Shellys, And uh, where are they? I don't even know where I put it. Ah, it's somewhere. Anyway, I got about 80. (laughs) I think Shelley's. Some are two and a half. Uh, a lot of them are Shelly ones and a lot of them are Shelly dimmers. And I consistently have there's there's one location where I seem to be replacing that particular one, let's say every six months. There's another location where they often drop off, I kill the power and it comes back. Hello, why do we do this? So Lee's not using the Philips Hue Hub, just using a Conbee. And and Lee, is that with uh, Decon, ZHA, Zigbee to MQTT? Now, the other thing, while I'm talking about the pain of all this, is that you're re-pairing, pairing pairing again, because it sounds weird, pairing again, the powered units like this is is one thing, and they're they're rock solid when you get them back up. Um, (laughs) Pairing the little Ekerra devices has been excruciating. Now one of the things I learned and this is what's different to the way it used to work in decons is that when you pair a new zigbee device you need to choose which router to pair it from keep in mind that every one of these is a router so I have I don't know like 20 routers or something in the house so rather than just going to the coordinator and saying pair if you're a long distance away you should be pairing via another unit so often I'm like sitting in the lounge room going, okay, I'm going to pair it with the Philips Hue that's like under the, the shelf above the fireplace kind of thing. Uh, but I'm having really, really unreliable results. It's like I'll pair it, put the device into pairing mode, it just won't be found. Uh, is it battery? Because I find as soon as it drops beneath about three volts, it has trouble pairing. All right, well, I'll just be replacing CR2032s left, right and center because you're going to have to do it sooner or later anyway, and I'm there. Still often don't pair again. So the, the, just the flakiness of the pairing, and I don't know if that's a ZHA thing or what it is, but is painful. So just before I started this, this live stream, I, I got ready to do the next round. So I've picked about 13 other devices around the house, you know, temperature sensors, proximity sensors, this sort of thing. And my methodology has been to go into decons and to delete them and then to restart Home Assistant, full restart, because when it comes back up, the entities it exposed, each one of those entities says non-available or no longer available, which means I can delete the entities. Which then means I can go and say put one of the either the coordinator or one of the routers on the new ZHA network into pairing mode, and then go to each little unit, push the button in there with my little iPhone reset pin, and then hopefully it pairs and it appears. Uh, but then it doesn't. And so I go, oh, I'll go somewhere else in the house and I'll try and pair it from there. And at the moment I've got one that I just cannot pair again and I don't know, like, how much is my time worth? At some point I'm just going to throw it in the bin and pull another one out of the cupboard and hopefully that works straight away. <laughs> so Lee's using Zigbee to MQTT. Yeah, that's interesting. I had a lot of people say, definitely do Zigbee to MQTT, this is after I independently did the research and really weighed everything up and it was 50-50. Afterwards people are like yeah, use Zigbee to MQTT but I just, I don't necessarily want to create the dependency on MQTT unless there's a good reason to. TJJ just tuned in, so probably missed a bit already, if you want to migrate your decons to Zigbee using ZHA, you don't need to repair any devices I think part of the problem, TJJ, Uh, He says you can carry over the same network settings and ZHA will rediscover the entities over time. Part of the problem was that I actually wanted to, I guess, test ZHA a bit before deciding to go with everything. Uh, And I also wanted to rename some entities and devices. So I don't mind too much. It it does get me away from the keyboard, (laughs) walking around the house trying to find Zigbee devices and repair them. And again, I really wanted to see ZHA running independently on its own with that built-in radio on the Home Assistant Yellow. Is it a good model? Well, again, as far as the lights are concerned, top-notch, instantaneous responses now. All the lights coordinate. They actually go on the right color and off the right, like all of that's fine. I'm very happy with that. It's just the manual pairing now of those Romania care devices. Hopefully by the time today is done, I will have done all the stuff that's going to be doable. (laughs) And and what I mean by that is I think there's that freaking mirror, I think is going to be left um, a little bit stuck there. And then here's the other thing while I'm on my high horse. I have got multiple Zigbee devices. I can see on my network map, they're connected. I've named the room they're in. I cannot find them. It's like I'm walking around the room going, where is that temperature sensor? And like just for... For context, like here's my AirPods Pro. They're smaller than the AirPods Pro case. Somewhere, I have tried to put it out of the way so it's not obvious, and now I can't find it. And it's not like when you lose your AirPod Pros and you can just go like find my AirPods and it bings. It's like somewhere, there's a range extender somewhere in Elle's room. I can't find that. And that's big. That's plugged into mains power too. And then there's a temperature sensor somewhere in Ari's room. I can't find that. I don't know where that is. This is all worth it. <laughs> it's honestly worth it. Stephen Jones says, above the doorframe. I'm tall enough to see above the doorframe. Uh, so, no, it's not above the doorframe. What I've tended to do is um, put them on the underside of shelves because that's somewhere that you only see when you get down on the floor. Maybe that's what I need to do. I'm going to finish this live stream. I'm going to start crawling around the house on my hands and knees looking for freaking Zigbee devices. Uh <laughs> I've tended to put them up under the shelves or uh, under tables and things like that because they're just they're just not obvious to anyone. Then, so I'll get down to the point where I've only got a few items left here on the map, and they'll be the they'll be probably some of the most painful ones. any Bully Army, why is it even worth it, Troy? Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know. I'm sitting here talking about though. I've saved myself all these headaches by just using a light switch. Is that bad for me to say? Yes, get out. <laughs> no, it's like this is a the, the when it works and it is working better now than it ever has before. At least the powered stuff. It, it's lovely. We have. I counted it once. I think we have hundred and fifty light bulbs in this house. Like it's 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 a large house. It's a lot of lights. To be able to have everything come on at the right time of day at the right level and go off at the right time of day and then just be able to switch it all off by just pressing one little care button as we walk up the stairs it is lovely it's it's awesome and what i'm finding is it's just taking me a long time to i guess smooth out the rough edges to, to make it work just the way i want to make it um yeah the light switches do work by the way so i, I wrote a five part blog series quite some time ago now about home automation, and, and one of the, the first tenants was, it's all got to work for normal humans. If my mum and dad walk into the house and they see a light switch, they're very good with light switches. I've had decades of experience. And they hit the light switch, it should do exactly what they expect it to do. And it does. So that's fine. But yes, yes, it is worth it. George, Gamify, get the kids to find them. <laughs> no, they get bored of that stuff pretty quickly too. Uh... David says, Z2M doesn't help with devices being hard to pair. Yeah, that's that's my assumption as well. TJJ, I just read your comment with Hugh Lights turning off randomly. If you still have issues, please join Zigbee in the HA Discord. We're happy to help. This goes for everyone, by the way. Uh, and look, I will add to that, that every experience I've had with community in Home Assistant has been super, super cool. I Honestly, I haven't tried the Discord. I do have the luxury of a bunch of people on Twitter, reading the tweets so it, it, it does make it it's a lazy way i know but super helpful people so thank you everyone that's, that's contributed to that all right folks i'm going to wrap it up there i've got to get on my hands and knees and start crawling around looking for uh zigbee devices in the kids rooms um maybe next week i'll be able to go hey it's all done it's all working fine and i don't have to worry about any of it anymore we'll see thanks folks see you next week